0: I started writing as a songwriter. The musicality of something is very important to me. So I'll like read my own stuff out loud sometimes. I feel like when people can read something and there's a clear flow and rhythm to it and the words like melt into each other, or sound nice next to each other, it locks them into the content early on. Like you want to keep reading because if you stop reading, it's like you're breaking this rhythm that you've started.
1: In this episode, I talked to Jessica DeFino. She's a journalist covering the beauty industry, but she tends to take an approach that's not as popular with the sponsors and publishers because she's anti a lot of their products and a lot of the nonsense that is put into the products and the marketing behind it and, and so much else. So she's taking a critical angle and uh, she's well-loved by her readers because of it, but maybe not so loved by the big brands. So we talk about how that came about. We talk about her writing style, super interesting, her approach um, of using her background in songwriting, going to school for songwriting, really to have a better, more interesting writing style. She gives some tips along that, that angle. We talk about how she launched her newsletter last year and growing that to 9,000 subscribers, uh, how that is a backbone for the rest of her the work she does in journalism, and just a bunch of things. It's a great conversation, so let's dive in. Jessica, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Okay so I want to we'll jump around a whole bunch but um, I want to start on the launching of your newsletter what was the the moment when you started to think okay I want to actually run a newsletter and start to control my own audience
0: I had been toying with the idea for a while and then I think it was uh, April 2020 like right after the pandemic um, where I had gotten into a situation where I had, I'm a freelance reporter, so I had four freelance stories out for this one outlet where when, you know, March happened and coronavirus lockdowns happened and everything was up in the air, they severed ties with all of their freelancers and basically gave these four unpublished stories back to me and gave me a kill fee. So it was like I had reported out these whole stories. I had spent months on them and now I had nowhere to put them. And I gave it about a month of pitching it out to other outlets and there weren't any takers because media was in such a precarious position at the time. And so finally I was like, maybe this is the opportunity I've been waiting for to launch a newsletter. Um, and I decided to call it the unpublishable because I couldn't get anyone to publish this (laughs) and yeah, it's been going, um, almost like every other week ever since.
1: Nice. Yeah. It's interesting how these like, unfortunate moments result in something that's like okay this is actually either a good thing now or hopefully to be a good thing soon but it starts with with uh some you know difficult times
0: yeah exactly i was like not you know i wanted these pieces to be big they were stories that i thought were important to tell and i really wanted them to be in like a major outlet but sometimes with media too you can't sit on things for very long it right. was like i maybe have maybe two more weeks before these stop becoming relevant you know
1: Yeah, so for context for anyone listening, like what were some of those stories as an example?
0: Sure. So the first story I published was a piece called Where Are All the Brown Hands? And it was a look into the like overwhelming whiteness of the top nail care companies in the beauty industry. Um, So if you would look at their Instagrams or if you would look at their websites, everything was modeled on white hands. And as a beauty reporter, when I have to like source images for the stories, I don't want to just be showing white hands if I'm writing about nail trends or whatever. And it would take me hours every week to comb through places and try to find the trend I was speaking to on a person of color. And at one point I was like, why is this happening? And how come it's so hard? Like this should not be hard. So I wanted to do an investigation into it. And just like that whole process had already taken six months. And I was like, you don't know what's going to happen. And this story might be scooped. It might be written by somebody else. It might be irrelevant in another month or so. So I really wanted to get that out there. And yeah, that started it all.
1: Yeah. When you publish a story like that, right. And you're used to publishing for a major beauty publication, but you're publishing it for yourself. What did that look like? What was the process of saying, like, I have this story that I have worked on for a long time and... I have a brand new newsletter and all at once, like how did you bring that to life and and pull the audience together?
0: Well, luckily at that point, I had amassed um, a little bit of a social media following just from my work on more like major publications. Like I had been writing for um, Vogue and Allure, Harper's Bazaar, and I had been pretty diligent about building up a social media audience. So I had a pretty sizable amount of readers just from Instagram. Yeah. And a couple of years prior, I had like tried starting my own beauty content platform, but I never really had the time to dedicate to it. But I had a small email list from that from when I was still doing it. So I kind of like funneled all of that together under this new umbrella of this is going to be like my personal reporting newsletter. And I kind of got the word out on Instagram. So it ended up reaching like a surprisingly large audience for something that was like a first time newsletter
1: yeah so if you don't mind sharing how many subscribers were like that first article got to
0: i think that first article probably went out to like 1500 subscribers tops. okay
1: yeah but that's you're right that that is a surprisingly of here's the first thing that we're doing and then yeah. it goes to show from right spending a whole career being known and, and building it in the space and then
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: you're not starting from scratch when you funnel it into email
0: Yeah, it it had always been important to me to, um, not as important, but it was something I thought about to collect email addresses and to get social media followers, because my goal had always been to write a book. And I know that when publishers are looking at whether to buy a book from you, it matters what kind of audience you have and how many people you have on an email list. So even though I wasn't sending things out prior to finally launching the newsletter, I was collecting emails here and there just, just to have for the, for the book pitch one day.
1: <laughs> yes. That's something that I've always heard is, you know, from agents and friends who are authors and all of that, is that they talk about the, the email list being the thing that the publisher's looking for. They're like, yeah, what's your idea? That sounds good. First question. <laughs> <How> many, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they use it as a proxy for how many copies can you sell, you know?
0: Exactly. Yeah. When I was pitching out my book, It was all about um, Instagram. This was probably like two years ago now. um, And I couldn't get an agent to talk to me until I had 10,000 Instagram followers. So that's like all I cared about for maybe a year. I was like, I don't care. I'm not going to put effort into anything else. I just need these Instagram followers. (laughs) And I did it.
1: Yeah. So you have 35,000 followers on Instagram now. Mm -hmm. Um, What were the things that worked for you as far as growing that, that audience on Instagram?
0: Honestly, in the beginning, when I was like, I need to get to 10,000 followers, I was a little scammy about it. <laughs> I did a lot of the like follow unfollow. So I followed a ton of people who were following accounts that were similar to mine. Uh-huh. And kind of, kind of what you do with that is like they see that you followed them, they check out your page. Hopefully, they follow you back. If they don't follow you back, you can like unfollow that person right. to keep your ratio looking good.
1: So is that like going through and following like 50 people a day kind of thing or hundreds of people? Yeah,
0: I mean, probably 50 to 200 people. Like I would spend probably an hour, two hours a day just doing Mm -hmm. stupid stuff like that that I didn't really care about. But I was like, I'll do anything to get a book deal. If it's following 200 people a day, that doesn't bother me. And if at the end of the day, they're looking at my profile and saying, hey, this is somebody whose content I care about. I'm going to follow them. It doesn't feel like, bad or wrong to me so I just did a lot of that
1: <laughs> yeah it's a very small way like small and non-intrusive way to be like hey do you want to like you're just sort of raising your hand and people either go like nope, or they go oh yeah I'll look at that for a second mm-hmm. what's interesting is I think that a lot of creators started in that way yeah but probably now when they tell their story they're like yeah you know I just <laughs> I just put out good content and then the content yeah. goes for itself and before you know it I was you know internet famous you know
0: <laughs> I think that worked it worked like 10 years ago maybe even five years ago but right now there's just so much content out there on every platform and I don't think it's fair to say that if you have great content you will be successful on that alone like I think you need more than that today
1: yeah so so the following um people in the space which we recommend. You know, regardless, what are some of the other things uh, on that quest to 10,000?
0: Yeah, I was following up a Storm. I was liking a ton of stuff because that's kind of the same strategy. Like sometimes Instagram too will freeze your account if you like too many things or you follow too many people. So I was getting into that. I did a ton of hashtagging at the time. Um, luckily, the, the area that I write to, to beauty, has like a very big and dedicated community on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So there are a ton of like beauty community hashtags out there that I was following and getting involved in and commenting and just really making my presence known in this community while at the same time posting my own content that I thought had a very different point of view that would be intriguing to people. So once right. they saw that I was engaged, they were like, who is this person? And there was, you know, a lot of content there for them to 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 delve into.
1: Yeah, that's good. In the last um, episode of this show, I had a YouTuber on. His name is Ali Abdal, and he's got, you know, he's built up to 2 million um, subscribers on YouTube. But he talked about that, like, back catalog that you have of when someone comes across your work for the first time, like seeing the back catalog and seeing it have a unique point of view. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that would be the experience, you know, when you pop up in some little way, and they're like, oh, okay, another, you know, beauty Instagram account. And then you come in like, oh, this is actually different, has a unique point of view. So um, I'd love for you to share, I don't know what the, the short version of like the different perspective that you're bringing to the beauty industry and what someone would notice when they come to your Instagram or your um, newsletter. And they're like, this is different. This is a, you know, challenging.
0: Um, I think the easiest way to put it is that most beauty content out there is very fluffy um, and very positive and very product heavy. Um, and my stance is very beauty industry critical. Um, and I I say that I'm pro-skin anti-product. So I'm okay. much more interested in how beauty applies to like your actual skin and your actual body and like the human itself rather than this external product you can apply. So I'm very focused on the science of how human beings work rather than the science of like a skincare ingredient.
1: Right. Okay, is there an example that comes to mind of of something where you're like do this, not that?
0: Yeah, I mean, probably the biggest example is just I mostly tell people to stop using skincare, you know, period end of story. Just you don't have to. Our skin does all of that for us, you know, humans have survived millennia without pre-bottled products and there's no reason why in the past, you know, 30 years, our skin has suddenly evolved to need a 10-step routine like it doesn't. So yeah, I just tell people stop using it and they're shocked at the results all the time.
1: I like that. I could see a conflict in message and business model in the industry Um, and your interaction (laughs) in in this. Um, There's a lot of money in the industry of obviously selling, I mean, any product, but especially a product that you need to buy every month or every three months or something like that. Like that's a very good business. So have you had any any conflict of publications not wanting to pick up your stories or any of those things as the publication is like, you're telling people to not buy our sponsors products, you know, or something like that?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's been a ton of pushback. And depending on what platform I'm writing for, I always see my work being edited in a certain way or softened in a certain way or a brand name being taken out. Um, I've had articles be published and then The platform takes them down almost immediately because an advertiser has complained. Um, I've had legal action threatened against me while I'm reporting for a story just for asking questions. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff happens all of the time because in beauty journalism there is a huge conflict between what you're supposed to be writing about and who's footing the bill for that content, right? Which is products and advertisers. Um, And I think in the beauty industry in particular, there's this extreme lack of of objectivity where you know editors and journalists and influencers are all gifted product or taken on press trips and and given money to review products in a way that in any other industry you wouldn't be able to call that journalism you know there's always got to be some sort of separation there like a typical journalist is not allowed to accept gifts in the beauty industry, it's the complete opposite. It's like, well, how can you write about our product if we don't gift it to you? So right. it's it's a very weird space that is very reliant on gifts and money and advertisers.
1: So how has that changed as uh, as you've you know launched your own newsletter? Um, I imagine you're still doing plenty of freelance writing. Is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm still, my, my thing is, is I try, if I have a story I want to tell, I obviously want to tell it to the biggest platform possible. Yep. And then if I can't get the story placed somewhere else, I will I will tackle it for the newsletter.
1: Okay. So the, yeah, how has like has the newsletter helped? Um, like for example, you're trying to get a story placed and and they're like, sure, we'll place it, but could we do this version of it instead? And and you know, maybe you're saying that like, no, that's okay. Whereas before the paycheck might have mattered more, or how's that relationship?
0: Yeah, that's pretty much spot on um I I didn't really push back too much before, but now that I have this um, platform that like actually brings in okay money for me, it's not like if I say, no, I don't want that story published this way. It's really not like I'm losing out on a paycheck anymore because I will make that up from my own subscribers. Um, So I think since I've launched the newsletter, there have been two instances of that where I've written a story for a platform, have been uncomfortable with the edits and actually pulled it. And was like, no, I don't, I don't want to publish it this way. And that feels really good to have a little bit more control over, over what I want to say and the information I want to put out there.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have even more, I mean, you, you always had agency, right? But now it's like, you have an alternative instead of like I'll keep pitching it to someone else who might have the same objections or, or that kind of thing on the business side. What's, well, actually, maybe if we dive into the newsletter today, right? So that we talked about where I was at a year ago when we launched. A, I, I just said we. When you launched, I had nothing to do with the launch of your <laughs> newsletter. <laughs> There's no royal we in that or take it credit later.
0: Um,
1: uh, when you launched, you know, a, a year and a half ago, it was at 1,500 subscribers. Um, mm-hmm. Where is it at today?
0: I'm at 9,000 subscribers now. Nice. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I have a, a model where... Some of it is free and some of it is paid. So there are like different cohorts within the subscriber base too. But like I'm I'm pretty happy with how it's grown on the the free side so far.
1: Yeah. And so on the paid side, you're charging $7 a month um, or 77 a year. What was the thinking on the pricing there? Was that something that you like agonized over a lot? Or was that a like, we'll just go with something and see how it works out?
0: Yeah, I didn't agonize over it too much. I started out at five dollars a month and after I got maybe my first 100 or 200 paid subscribers, and I felt really good about like, wow, that feels like a lot. That's like a good chunk of change I didn't have before. And then when I was looking into the fees that were taken from like Stripe processing, from Substack, yep. I was taking home like closer to $3 per subscriber. Right. And I was like, for the time and attention that I want to give this project, I'm just not gonna be making enough at $5 a month until I hit a certain number of paid subscribers. Um, So I decided to bump it up to seven just to sort of motivate myself to put the time and attention into it that I wanted to give it. Cause if I wasn't going to be bringing in like actually $5 to me, it didn't feel worth it. So by pricing it at seven, I get more like $5, (laughs) which felt like a, okay, I'm happy with that number. Um, now that I do have more paid subscribers, I am toying with the idea of, um, of lowering it because I feel like, I feel like from, um, at least from my perspective, when I am subscribing to a newsletter, Mm -hmm. I subscribe to a ton of them. I'm much more interested to click. I'm much more um, likely to click pay and subscribe if it's $5. And if it's like six or seven or eight, I'm like.
1: You think about it a eh, bit
0: That's more. kind of a lot. Do I care enough about this content to pay that much? But personally, for me, $5 is like a whatever. I'll, yeah. I'll subscribe kind of thing. So I I think I'm getting closer to the point where I feel like I have enough of a base that I can do that and hopefully reach more people.
1: Right. Okay. I have so many questions here, but diving <laughs> into the, the psychology side, of when you're deciding to subscribe to something, right? Because everyone listening is running a newsletter and asking these same questions of like, should it be $5? Should it be $20? Should it be free? Should it be $2? You know, like any of these Mm -hmm. things. And then they're analyzing their own buying habits. And they're like, but what if it's a a business versus a fitness versus, you know, any of these, like what category I'm in? Um, What are those other things that you notice beyond price of when you as a newsletter consumer uh, go to like instant subscribe versus like, now think about this. How many articles have I enjoyed from there recently? Or like that tips it over to the other side.
0: Right. <sighs> I don't know that there are, that like my personal revelations will be uh, relevant to people. I personally, just because I run a newsletter, I love to support. So if it's anything that I'm like vaguely interested in and it's like $5 a month or less, I don't know why $5 is my cutoff. Yeah. But I'll subscribe and I'll just see what it's like for a couple of months. And if I don't like it, whatever i can always unsubscribe but i just really love the idea of putting that abundance out there into right. the universe and just being like i'm a little bit interested in this and i want to support this creator because i know what a like a hustle it is um i'm sure the average like newsletter consumer doesn't really doesn't really think that way but for me i don't know i love a good headline if it's like a good quippy funny headline like i want to be reading fun critical content. There's a lot of like heavy critical content out there. Um, and I love something that's like fun and critical. So that'll get my attention. Yeah.
1: So like there are things wrong with the world and we could get depressed about them, but that doesn't do anyone yeah. any good. So like let's have fun yeah. about fixing the things that are wrong with the world.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like turn it into a little bit of a like the state of the world I feel is so bizarre. Right. It's just so wild that we have set up the world the way we've set it up, like everything that that exists is just something that like some guy made up one day and we were like, OK, we're going to go along with it. And I feel like there is a lot of humor in that. So, yeah, I I love looking at the depressing state of the world through like a bit of a jokey lens. So if I find anything like that, I'm like immediate subscribe. Yeah, that makes
1: sense. And I think that's where for anyone writing their content, like having that voice really matters. So it's not just, you know, this is what you're teaching or this is, um, the educational side or, you know, purely on the entertaining side. It's like, okay, but how can you, how are you going to make me feel as I read and consume this content?
0: That's a great way to think about it. I think the difference, um, when I'm consuming like a newsletter versus the news is I don't really... I don't concern myself with like tone or voice when I'm reading an article from like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Um, But a newsletter is so much more personal. It's like you're getting into people's personal inbox. It's more of a one on one relationship. Um, And I think it's a great opportunity to play with your voice in a way that you really sometimes cannot when you're writing for a media platform.
1: Yeah. So what are the things? that you've done to practice that. Obviously you've had a whole career as a writer. And so yeah, as you've found your voice and and the things that you play with, are there yeah, little exercises or things that you play with or try on um, or anything like that? Any any tips for someone who's also looking to like mm-hmm. craft their own voice?
0: I don't know if it's as much of a tip, but <laughs> I started writing as a songwriter. I went to school for songwriting. So I feel like a lot of my writing takes that into account. Like that's the musicality of something is very important to okay, me. Yeah. So I'll like read my own stuff out loud sometimes. Like flow of a sentence is very important to me, the rhythm of a sentence, the like intonation, the um consonants and assonants and all of that alliteration. I I feel like when people can read something and there's a clear flow and rhythm to it and the words like melt into each other or sound nice next to each other um, i personally feel like it locks them into the content early on like you want to keep reading because if you stop reading it's like you're breaking this rhythm that you've started so yeah i would say rhythm is very important to me and reading things out loud um helps me make sure that what i've written is what i've like envisioned and felt Yeah. In my mind and my heart when I'm (laughs) conceptualizing the thing.
1: Yeah. Reading out loud is a really good tip because there's so many things where I'll find myself starting to read what I wrote and then like finishing it in a much more like in my head in a much more conversational way. And then realizing the sentences or the following sentences that I had down were not conversational. They were like stilted. Mm -hmm. And the version that I wanted to auto finish in my head is like, oh, that's better. Let's let's say that instead, (laughs) you know.
0: No, I love that. And I think I think newsletter subscribers are like ready for more conversational writing. Like I don't I think you can be like professional and say something that has weight and has merit and has value and still be kind of, you know, casual about it. Sort of as a strategy to connect with people.
1: Is there a post or a piece that you've written that you felt like maybe you struggled to find that balance of like it was a maybe a weighty piece or something like that. And you're like, oh, maybe this one I shouldn't be playful with or mm-hmm. you
0: know, finding that line. Yeah, there are definitely times when I take a break from the jokey conversationality. Um, I think the last big piece that I wrote um, was about uh, anti-Asian racism when like right. all the news came out that like anti-Asian hate crimes were at an all time high. Um, There's a lot of the beauty industry tends to take a lot of its concepts from Eastern culture, from Asian culture. Um, So there was a lot to say there about racism within the beauty industry that, you know, happens in ways that you may not even realize. So for a piece like that, um, I think there were some moments of of humor within it, like a dark humor within it. But for the most part, for for things like that. Um, I take that very seriously. I think my readers take that very seriously and I, yeah, it's less conversational then because it's like, no, I have something that's like very important and clear that I want to get through to you. And I don't want it to be muddled with any sort of, uh, jokiness.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So let's say you were a a writing coach, coaching someone, uh, writing a newsletter, (laughs) that sort of thing. (laughs) You don't have to become a writing coach after this. Thank God. But like, you know, you have a friend, maybe they're, they're writing the newsletter, they've got a couple thousand subscribers, they're getting going and and they're saying, like, you know, they, they hear what you're talking about of the the musicality and the the flow of of writing, and they're like, okay, short of going to songwriting school, <laughs> like what's it what, you know, is there a a book or another thing that you would recommend of where to start to to sort of dive into the the flow of what you're writing?
0: Um, there is a great essay um, by Ursula K. Le Guin. Is that how you say her last name? I'm not I feel like sure. I've only read it and I've never said it out loud before.
1: Yep. I have so many things like that in my life where I'm like, <laughs> I,
0: I don't know how to pronounce this word. <laughs> it's so embarrassing writing about skincare because there are these huge, like, long skincare ingredients that I write all the time. I can spell them for right. you off the top of my head, but then I tried to, like, say them out loud on a podcast, for example, and I'm like, I don't know how to say this at all. <laughs> um, I'm looking for this, this essay. It's from her book, no, T- um, no Time to Spare. Okay. And there's this, and she writes a lot about writing, um, but she has this beautiful essay about rhythm um, and how it's different in poetry and how it's different in prose and how to kind of like sort out the rhythm of your piece. Um, and I would say that was hugely helpful to me when I, when I first read it. Nice. Uh, so I would recommend doing that. And yeah, I don't know. I use things like, um, I mean, I, I use a thesaurus all the time, but I use rhyme zone a lot <laughs> to, to, for like fun phrasing and plays on words. Uh, it's just rhymezone.com and you type in the word that you're, you're playing with and it'll kind of like, you know.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly the kind of of, (laughs) person that I was looking for. That's good. Yeah, I I think that a lot of people, you know, they come to newsletters from kind of two different sides, either from the journalist, um, professional writer side, or the, you know, hobbyist, maybe even I never thought I'd be a writer, but I have the skill or something to teach or behind the scenes in this industry. And like writing Maybe as a slog or a chore. And so it's always interesting when these two worlds meet. And either, you know, one group might be really good at marketing because they knew they came from that world. And another group is like really good at writing. And they each hate the other's job. But they're both like they pick the job that's the intersection of both of those worlds.
0: Yeah. No, you're so right. I think there is this like sort of misconception in the journalism and reporting space that any reporter who is on Substack has decided to go in, all in on the newsletter because there have been some very high profile journalists who are no longer writing for like the Times or the Post and they're just doing their newsletter. Um, but I think for the large majority of, of reporters and journalists who have, who have started newsletters as well, it's like a both and kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. we're still freelancing and we have this this sort of personal platform.
1: Yeah. So how do you think about your career developing over the next couple of years? Is it is there a specific milestone in mind um, where you're trying to grow the newsletter to, to do that full time? Or is it always trying to place a piece to the biggest possible audience? What's that look like?
0: Yeah, I would say my goal, um, like I very much, this is kind of earnest and nerdy, but like I very much want to change the beauty industry. I see so mm-hmm. much that is wrong with it. And I see how it like emotionally impacts people um, in terms of anxiety, depression, mental disorders, eating disorders. Like there's a lot of heavy stuff that comes out of the beauty industry. And I like, I'm very passionate about actually measurably changing it. So for me, the number one thing is always, I wanna reach the largest audience possible with an unadulterated message. So if I can do that in a place like the New York Times, of course, Mm -hmm. I'd rather place it there than my own newsletter. Um, If I can do that through a book, of course, I'd rather write it in a book than in my own newsletter. So the newsletter has been sort of like a nice foundation for me to have and a nice fallback for me to have. And I, I truly love fostering it as its own little separate entity. But I would I would say I almost try harder to place things elsewhere because I want as many people as possible yeah. to be able to to read the things that I'm I'm writing about the newsletter I'm I am writing my first book right now and it's definitely been hard to juggle book writing with like reporting for other platforms and deadlines so I will say like juggling a book and my own personal newsletter has been much easier than trying to juggle a book and reporting so I think I think there will be times in my writing career where I'll lean a little bit more heavily on the newsletter And times where I'll lighten up on the newsletter, always seeing it as sort of like a supplemental tool to my like greater mission.
1: Something that I think, I don't know what publication they were writing for, but someone was telling me about was that in each of these publications, they're watching the view counts, you know, for every story. And that they had gotten the newsletter, I think they were maybe at 20, 25,000 subscribers. And they would, when they placed a piece with a fairly major publication, they would email it out and they it was enough direct traffic to that individual piece that they could get it to move on some of these internally watched leaderboards and stuff like that.
0: And so editors
1: were paying attention to that of like, they didn't necessarily know like making things up that, you know, Jessica was the one who drove a bunch of traffic to this, but they're just like, wow, Jessica's stories are consistently resonating. And so they were wanting to pick up more pieces in that. Um, and so I always, always wonder about that, of how you can, it's not gaming an algorithm or anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. You're just saying like, look, here's my story and I bring an audience as well.
0: Oh, I love that. I might try to do that. I always do, like I do these little roundups every other week for my paid subscribers. Um, and, and if I have something that comes out, I'll always put drop the link in there, but I've never done like a strategized push like that, right. which would be interesting to experiment for sure.
1: Well, because it's like if someone is following you, they're following you for your content and your ideas and your perspective, and they probably don't really care if it's you know in your Substack, you know, on your Instagram, or you know, in a right. major publication. There's like, look, I want to read your your content, and you're like, oh, today's article is
0: yeah over here
1: on Vogue, or you know,
0: that's like kind of nice to hear because I think that's something that I do worry about pretty often with my newsletter is i i feel like a ton of my newsletter um, readership has come from social media Mm -hmm. and so i'm like very conscious of cross-posting like i don't I don't want someone to get my newsletter and say, I already saw this on your Instagram, so I don't need to subscribe. I don't need another email in my inbox because I'm seeing it on Insta, you know, and I don't know if that's like a legitimate concern or how much people see when they subscribe to you on different platforms. But that has been, you know, something that I'm very mindful of where if it's like a meme that I'm posting on social media or just like a one-off Instagram post, I'm probably not going to repeat that content. Even if I think it's good or important on the newsletter, just because I don't know. I'm aware of like how precious it is to allow someone into your email inbox because at least for me, like email is very annoying. The worst part of my day is trying to like go through my inbox and file it away into folders. And I never want my newsletter to be like, oh, I've seen this already. Or I've seen something very similar from her already.
1: Right. Yeah. I don't know that I have a perspective on, on that. I'm just thinking about it. I don't have the same concern. But I don't know that, you know, whether I I should or not. I think probably my approach would be that if you've already seen something, let's say there's five or six things in the newsletter, and I've already seen one of them on Instagram, that I just skip past that one. Yeah. And so my focus would be on making sure that everything's high quality, more than making sure that everything is um, completely a unique.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, that's encouraging to hear, and I think that that might uh, change how I approach my like every other week roundup. Yeah. Maybe I'll experiment and I'll see, I'll see if people are like, Hey, I already saw this.
1: You know, the other thing that I would do is I would ask, uh, one of my favorite things to do is to ask for replies to my newsletter, which has a downside of that. You get a whole bunch of emails, um, right. <laughs> but they can often be really fun because they're, um, You know the people who are reading every day and like they're following your stuff and and so they're usually not pitching you things they're just saying like here's the thing that i like and so in that case i just say hey you know if i share something on instagram would you also like it here or do you feel like keep those worlds more separate like don't i want everything to be unique and then i would just like say hit reply and let me know yeah and, and yeah, but, you know, out of 9,000 subscribers, I'd bet you'd get at least, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 replies or something.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Oh, you're inspiring me. I have so many ideas now.
1: <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay. One thing that I want to know more about is growing that that newsletter from the pieces that you're, I assume subscribers are coming from Instagram and then also from the pieces that you're publishing. Have you Mm -hmm. seen like spikes um, when it came from an Instagram post that did what really well or some other promotion to drive subscribers to the newsletter?
0: I mean, I definitely get new subscribers every time I post about it on Instagram or Instagram stories. So I would say that's been like a main driver for me. But my two biggest like surges of subscribers came from um, all of the newsletter press that's been happening lately because, you know, like. The newsletter revolution is here (laughs) so um i got a little write-up in new york magazine and then one in the uk sunday style magazine and both of those were amazing and totally unexpected i had no idea they were coming um so now i'm like damn how do i how do i facilitate some more press for myself because this is where it's at (laughs)
1: like what would a spike like that look like is that a couple hundred subscribers 500 a thousand from one of those
0: I would say from New York Magazine it was probably close to a 1000 and then from nice. the UK Sunday Times was probably between like 500 600.
1: Yeah, that that's substantial.
0: Yeah, it it was it was really exciting. Um and it definitely goes to show like the power that these publications have and it's 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 interesting to see that power as applied to like inherently um anti large publication platform like a personal newsletter, you know?
1: Yeah. So how do you how do you think about it when it's like we more press would be nice. You're like, hey, this yeah. this yeah, is yeah. A, a big boost, you know, mm-hmm. um a 10% lift in total subscribers or something from a single thing. Mm-hmm. And then knowing what you know about journalism and being in the space, like is that something that you craft a strategy around, say, okay, I'm going to intentionally pursue um, placements in in these mm-hmm. publications
0: no in terms of just the newsletter I I don't think I'll ever like strategize and and try to do that I think I mean the the reason that I got those two placements is just because I, I feel like in the beauty space my newsletter does offer something that's really different that you're not getting anywhere else um and so it becomes inherently interesting to write about or call out because this is the only place you can get that kind of thing if that's what you're looking for. Um, So I think it's just more of, like, striving to figure out, like, how can I create more very original content that actually, you know, gives value to the reader in a way that's going to create that kind of buzz. Um, I don't want to, like, manufacture the buzz so much as I want. Like, my content to be good enough for people to actually talk about it. But that being said, when my book comes out eventually like hell yes I plan to like strategize and try to get shit written about me everywhere which will hopefully be good for the newsletter as well but yeah I feel like I'm going to save all of that like smarmy uh uh you know networking for for book launch
1: yeah that makes sense to me I want to push back on it a little bit because (laughs) so much the success of the book is going to uh be dependent on, on a lot of things but a big factor is going to be the size of your platform when that book comes out. Yeah. And so if you wait to be self promotional until the book comes out, then like, yeah. that'll get this far. But let's say you were self promotional in a tasteful way. We're going to be tasteful about all of this. Yeah. Um, you know, but along the way, and that 9,000 subscribers turned into 25,000, right? It's yeah. that much bigger of a platform to launch from. So I'll say that with the caveat that I think the same thing. Like,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, we have, I have lots of friends who have big platforms and I'm like, oh, I could guest post on them, you know, with them or like ask, Hey, can I come on your podcast or something like that? And I'm like 90% sure that they would say yes. But then I think, oh, I should save that for when my book comes out. Right. Cause yeah, you know, you have that, maybe that's just that one ask. So right. I think it's something that a lot of creators struggle with of like when to promote. And so intellectually I'm like promote early and often. Yeah. And then, Emotionally, what I'm actually doing is, I think exactly what you're doing. Of like, I'll save that for when I really need it.
0: Yeah, I think for me, there's also this um, this sort of inherent struggle with what I write about and getting press, because I am pretty critical of beauty media coverage, um, and I'm aware that I have made some enemies in the beauty media space. Like, I'm not the most well liked person <laughs> um, in some of these circles. So, I do feel like I only have like a certain amount of rope that I can uh, right. use up like a certain amount of leeway in these spaces. Um And then also, I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's something I have not sat down to really work out my feelings about, but there is some sort of ethical dilemma there where if I'm critiquing the way a certain platform has covered this beauty trend or whatever it is I'm critiquing, and then I'm sort of like, Asking for press at the same time, like ethically, what does that say about me and my participation in these systems? (laughs) You know, right, which is a big question and not one that I'm going to be able to answer here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Are there publications outside of the beauty space that would have less of the maybe sponsor ties or other, you know, issues that the main publications might have, but that would find your story interesting?
0: so i think the path that i am trying to follow in beauty coverage right now is um the path of sustainable fashion coverage like i feel like fashion and beauty have been so intertwined in their coverage and they're they're both sort of seen as these like less serious pursuits they're both seen as like inherently female interests um and they've struggled to be taken seriously i think but with like the push towards sustainability content and you know the inevitability of climate change, I feel like sustainability in fashion is getting a ton of like serious quality coverage all over the place, even from platforms that wouldn't normally touch fashion. Um, and I see beauty as being very behind that. Like there are still these huge global issues in the beauty industry and beauty production, and just the way that we consume in beauty um, that hasn't been touched. But I see it starting to be touched by these larger, serious news organizations. And I feel like there's such an opportunity there um, and that those are topics that I'm super passionate about and super interested in. So I'm, I'm trying to carve out a space for myself there to say, look, we're taking fashion seriously for the impact that it has culturally, societally, environmentally. Like we have to start taking beauty just as seriously because it's just as big um, of a problem. I
1: like I like that angle and that that makes a lot of sense. And just seeing trends in a neighboring industry, um, I think you're right. I, ho- I hope that I hope that you're right and that plays out in that way. <laughs> Me too. One of the things that I'm curious about is kind of the rise of newsletters in the journalism space. I don't come from that world. I very much come from the newsletter world, and so seeing you know, so many people either make the switch full time um, or get to the point where they're like, hey, I've been writing these pieces everywhere and and like my byline has just directed people back to Twitter or Instagram or something. Um, right. And now it's directing people back to my own audience. What what are you seeing in like in your friends and colleagues and all of that? Is Are a lot of people starting newsletters or is there this overwhelming trend of some are starting it and maybe it's getting hyped more than is actually happening
0: yeah i think that's what i've noticed i don't think as many people within my like sort of direct community of of journalists and reporters are starting newsletters and i think it's gotten so hyped like we're in such a moment of coverage right now that it almost like seems like a little lame to start a newsletter now (laughs) because like everyone's doing it yeah but the reality of the situation is that everyone is not doing it. And I think there's still a lot of opportunity and a lot of room um, to grow and to move into and to create your own kind of thing. Um, like I mentioned, I think there is a big misconception that if you're starting your newsletter, that means you're done with journalism and you're just doing this right. now. It's like, no, you can very much do both. And you can do your newsletter once a month. You can do it you know, once a week. You can do it however often you have time for. Like you said, you could use it as a tool just to send out your journalism um, pursuits to a wider audience. Um, but yeah, I think sort of the hype around newsletters has sort of um, created this little. Ooh, I don't know if I want to do a newsletter too because I'm going to seem like I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. Right? Yeah
1: the the newsletter hipster trend is sort of passed. <laughs> <And
0: like, laughs> it's gone mainstream. Yeah. I can't do it. Exactly. I mean, for the record, I don't believe that that's true, right. <laughs> but I think that's how people are perceiving it.
1: Well, it's so funny to me because I've been doing e- you know email and email newsletters and that kind of thing since I guess 2013, uh, and you know very excitedly got into all of that. And I was telling people like email is amazing, and friends of me who've been doing it since like 2001 were like, yeah, like good job discovering it. Do you want yeah. to go star? <laughs> like what a pat on the back? What are you hoping for here? You know, and so it's interesting watching you know, these trends as they come.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you had a friend who, you know, is in the space, who comes to you and says like, oh, I'm going to start a newsletter, you know, what are the things, I don't know, the three or four things that you would tell them right away of here's what they should watch out for, strategies that they should uh, employ, any of those things.
0: Um, I mean, my number one piece of advice that seems really obvious, but isn't always, is just to find your niche. Like, I would say hone in on something as specific as you possibly can um, within your space so that people have a reason to to subscribe. Um, I would say to have like, especially if you're doing Substack or a place where you can view past newsletters, like have a healthy backlog before you actually start soliciting people um, to sign up so that they can see what your content is like. And then this is a big thing that I think is missing from a lot of the journalism to newsletter side. Because like you said, there are people who are coming from marketing and people who have never done marketing in their life. Um, Something that I do is that when I'm sending something out to my paid subscribers, I send a shorter version out of it to my free subscribers. And I say, click to continue. And then it brings them to the paid subscriber thing. And I convert Between thirty and fifty people every time, and when I sign up for free newsletters, which I sign up for a ton of them, I have never once gotten that. I've never once gotten an email that's like the intro of the article, and then it you know sort of leads me into that paid funnel. And I used to work in marketing. I used to work in fashion marketing, and that's that was just like a no duh, of course I would do that sort of thing. Um, But I've never seen. Any other like journalist to newsletter convert use that very easy tool. So I would say take advantage of that for sure.
1: Yeah. That's interesting of the things that in one industry, like right in the marketing industry, everyone's like, obviously, and of course you would do that. And then you get into another space and it, and it is this exciting new thing. A lot in my career, I started in, in design and um, like user experience and interface design. And so... I brought a lot of design ideas to marketing, and then a lot of like mar- direct response marketing ideas into the design world. And in each circle, everyone was like, "Whoa, this is amazing and new!"
0: Yeah. And, but if
1: you did it in the original circle, people are just like, "Obviously, what? <laughs> there's nothing novel about this."
0: Exactly. I think people really um, underestimate the skills they learn on the way to get to where they've they've gotten to. Like, I never would have thought the job that I hated in fashion marketing would have served me in in any way because i sort of wanted to get away from all of that like marketing bullshit for -hmm. lack of a better word because at least at the company that i was at it mostly felt like lying (laughs) and just like squeezing money out of people but i think you can use those tools uh for good (laughs) as well which is what i'm trying to do
1: yeah so a lot of creators struggle with that transition where they feel like Either from a past experience or something they've seen where they're like, oh, I can never ask for money for this or charge for it or um, that kind of thing. They're very, very hesitant to sell in any way. Um, what would you say to them or, or what's your journey been like in saying like, no, this is what it costs. This is why you should subscribe.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to have um, to have a reason, you know, make it very clear that it's reader funded or user funded. Um, for me, all of my content is very clear that I blame the media advertisement model for so much of the misinformation and bullshit that's out there in beauty. So me saying that my newsletter and this content is completely user funded so that I'm loyal to you, the reader, rather than an advertiser um, is very like, you know, quote unquote, on brand for me. And I think people who are interested in my content are more than happy to pay for it because it's solving a problem that I am pointing out in my reporting, you know? Um, and then I would just say also, like, allow yourself to be surprised at how much people want to support you. Um, I have been so pleasantly surprised by people who are just, they just like my content and they're happy to pay for it. And I think one of the the biggest, um, the biggest ways that I've seen that happen is that um, on Substack, they let you do like the paid so you can do monthly or a yearly rate, or you can do something called a founding member, which is just somebody who pays a little bit more to support. Right. And they don't really get any extra benefits at all. And I am shocked at the amount of people who give me 50 more dollars than they need to just to support. Um, and that's like every time I get that email, that's like someone signed up for the founding member level. It's It's heartwarming. Because it's like, there are a lot of people out there who want to support great creator um, led content.
1: Do you have a percentage or numbers on that? Like, I'm curious. Oh, every time I see that, I'm like, how many people select that option? Yeah. I know from doing multiple prices or packages that it's one of the best ways to increase revenue is to just mm-hmm. have a higher price option available. And we're yeah. confirming that, but I want to know. any numbers.
0: Yeah. I have not like crunched the numbers on anything, but just from, so I sent out a paid newsletter um, on Thursday. So between Thursday and today from like my conversions of free to paid signups, I've gotten, um, I think 56 new signups. I would say maybe 10 of them were the yearly membership and maybe five of them were the founding member.
1: Okay. Wow. So half of the yearly ones being the like, yeah, I'll I'll pay you $50 more just to support your work even more. Yeah. Right. Cause the yearly membership is supporting your work, but even just like yeah. above and beyond.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's just like roughly from what I remember from the, from yeah. the emails. Um, I'm not like super concerned with, with stats and strategizing right now. I'm just like, ecstatic every time I get the the ding on my phone that says somebody new signed up
1: (laughs) yeah that's super fun so what are the things that like you're thinking about next for the newsletter is it slow steady growth Uh, maintain that while working on the book Mm -hmm. is there a big milestone that you're working towards any of those things
0: there is not a huge milestone but I think when I first started it and this is I think maybe just a personal hang-up but I was very conscious of not like Bothering people too much, like not being in their inbox constantly. Um, so it was like one big story a month, and then every other week for paid. Um, and now I'm toying with the idea of doing more um, short form content and more weekly content. Um, I'm going to be launching a new feature for paid subscribers that's going to be um, like an advice column, but not not like beauty advice, but more like, how do I navigate the industry? How do I divest from these marketing tactics? How do I like stay smart and know what's a lie and what's not? Um, So I'm going to be launching that within the next month. And then um, for everybody, I'm going to be launching, I don't know if it's going to be weekly or even twice a week, just like little, um, like a little tip newsletter. Because what I do in my newsletter a lot is critique the beauty industry and point out what's wrong with it and people are always like okay sure but how do i apply that to my own life like how do i get over the fact that i know it's marketing that i i don't need to have big lips to be beautiful but how do i stop feeling that way right so it's going to be more like practical um tips for i guess sort of healing from all of the the beauty industry shit that they they put us yeah. through <laughs> But it's going to be very short, quick hits, like, you know, five sentences, a paragraph tops. Um, so I'm going to experiment with a couple of different forms of writing and a couple of different frequencies and see see what people like.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. Well, if anyone wants to go subscribe to that and follow you on Instagram and other things around the web, where should,
0: where should they go? Sure. So my sub stack is JessicaDefino.substack.com and you can sign up for the unpublishable there. And then on Instagram, I'm at Jessica DeFino underscore.
1: Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This has been fun to yeah. learn about a whole side of uh, <laughs> the newsletter industry that I'm less familiar with and, and just hear your story and your writing tips and everything else.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. I, I feel inspired. I'm going to go <laughs> send more newsletters.
1: Sounds good.